0: Hello and welcome to the sixth episode of Show and Tell, inspiring mini talks at Queen Mary University of London. In this episode, we'll hear a short introduction from Sharika Alam and Rupert Danroyter from English and Drama at Queen Mary. Then we will move on to the speakers: Sophia Ahmed, a full-time author; Charlotta Salmi, lecturer in post-colonial and global literature at Queen Mary; Magda Ołdiewska, activist, independent researcher, and blogger at the Feminist Library. Liza Valance, Artistic Director, CEO at Studio 3 Arts, Maria O'Sholdie, freelance writer and artistic director and CEO of XTANT, Britain's leading professional performing arts company of visually impaired artists, Kamiko Mendel, Artistic Director of the UK's award-winning British East Asian Theatre Company Yellow Earth. Follow Hugh M-U-L-S-E-D on Twitter for details of future events and podcasts.
1: Uh, Welcome to Queen Mary. It's it's a pretty uh, cool place. I've worked here for around three years. Really enjoy working here. I think it's a great place um, to explore ideas and I'm very lucky to be able to explore ideas like this trying to talk about stuff to do with humanities, social sciences, and how um, people can study and work in them in a time when people aren't really being encouraged to study or explore these ideas of kind of... I work in the School of English and Drama here, so I'm in uh, marketing, so I'm an evil salesperson. Don't trust me. But yeah, no, I I think it's um, a really great place that has done done some really good things in the past and is currently doing some really good things. So a couple of examples. One is... um, that we pay the London living wage so everyone who works here. We were the first university to do that in the country, which is pretty amazing when you think about it. Lots of other universities and other big organisations outsource um, their cleaning and all that kind of stuff to companies that pay below the minimum wage. So it's kind of uh, the London living wage as well. So it's quite a big thing. Another thing is um, Queen Mary champions mental health first aid, so that's a big one. So mental health is really important. Young people go for a lot of stuff, and. Uh, Queen Mary pay for people like me and lots of other people to train to help students um, and um, in times of real crisis. So, what I'd say is, like, places like Queen Mary, but also outside of here, you know, it's fine to talk about these things. And Queen Mary has actually been quite a good um, pioneer in terms of um, talking about this stuff. So, yeah, that's one of the uh, things I really like about working here. Um, and show and tell so the idea came from, yeah, we, we originally did it as an outreach project. So, it's a podcast, so it's online. It's also live, you're here, thank you for coming. I know it's a bit of a crazy Wednesday night and loads of people are busy, so thanks for making the time to come. But yeah, it was basically to show off some stories of what people have done outside of here. Also, academics from our school to try and show what they're doing out in the real world as well. So Charlotte is one of those people who will be talking a bit. But anyway, I won't keep talking, I'll pass you over to Sharika.
2: Hi everyone, I'm Sharika Alam. I'm an MA student in post colonial and global literatures here at Queen Mary. So, my research interests include oil literatures and petroculture and post colonial eco criticism. And tonight, I have the privilege of um, introducing our fabulous guest. So our first speaker tonight is Sufia Ahmed. Sufia has worked in advertising and in the House of Commons and now is a full-time author. In 2010, Sufia set up the BB Foundation, a non-profit organisation that arranged visits to the Houses of Parliament for underprivileged schoolchildren. So Sufia, take it away. Um, thank you for having me. Um, it's a real pleasure to be here. I wanted to talk to you guys about the journey to
3: getting um, published, I'm um, a full time author now, so that's my book there, it's called Secrets of the Hennegal and it's published by Penguin um, and it came out in um, 2012 and I'm going to tell you about the journey that I had to try and get that book published. Um, I grew up quite close to here, I grew up in Leytonstone which is just a few miles that way. And I was about um, seven or eight years old when I decided that I wanted to be a children's author because I absolutely loved books and I loved writing stories as well. But I kind of grew up with a very typical Asian dad who was like, what do you mean you want to become an author? You can't become an author. You have to be a doctor or you have to be a teacher. You have to do something that's going to pay your bills, you know, have a house, you know, typical dad stuff. So he did not discourage the reading encouraged it um, but I had to focus on my uh, studies do my GCSEs A-levels went to university where I did a social science degree um, and came out at the age of 21 thinking uh, you know because as I was growing up just writing lots of stories this is my chance to get published my dad's happy and um, you know this is it. I'm going to be a published author I'm going to be famous and I'm going to make lots of money. So 21 years old and I thought, you know, this is it, this is my chance to get published. So I went out and did the research and all I had to do was send three sample chapters and a synopsis to a number of writing agents. And I did that, um, you know, brought the Writers and Artists Yearbook um, and sent off um, synopsis and, you know, three sample chapters, really, really confident that one or two or three of them are going to get back to me and say, this is fantastic and let's get you, you know, published with one of the big publishing houses. But about six weeks after I got, you know, sent them off, I started to get the rejection letters in, which all said the same thing, which is that you can write, don't give up, your writing style is absolutely fine, but we don't think what you've written is something that young people want to read, so you need to write something else. So I thought, well, okay, they didn't like that story, I'll I'll send them another one, and really worked on another story, um, and sent them off again, a little less confident this time, but still sure that at least one of them was going to get back to me and say, you know, this is fantastic, and let's get you published. This is the time um, when Harry Potter came out. so it was 1997. But again, you know, lots of rejection letters coming through. And that's when I actually thought to myself that maybe my dad, all those years ago, well, throughout my whole entire life, was right. Maybe that dream to become a published author isn't going to happen for me straight away. I'm going to have to go out and get a job just like everybody else. But the one thing I was really, really sure of at the age of 21 was that if I couldn't be published, if I couldn't achieve my dream, then I wanted the kind of job where I could earn a lot of money. Um, I grew up on a councillor's you day, no know, money was always an issue. Um, I'd been to university, had aspiration, and I thought, you know, this is, you know, I'm going to make money. So I applied to work um, in advertising, and I got a job in an advertising company uh, in St. Paul's doing advertising for investment banks, which was good basic pay and lots and lots of commission. So if you want to make money, you have to head towards the city of London, which is, I think is just a few miles that way. Yeah. And uh, normally, I brought a slideshow with me, and I normally do this presentation to year 11 and six formers, um, just to show them the kind of work I did so this was my job basically I would go into St Paul's on a Monday and ring up my clients who are investment bankers and um, go to the airport on a Tuesday and go to any of those countries there and that was my job to travel all over the world all for free or paid for you know by the company but I had to come back with the business had to be good at talking and securing the deals and I did that for about seven years and loved it as I said you know um, my parents weren't very uh, you know we were okay, you know, but as I said, I grew up in a council estate. I hadn't really travelled the world much. We only ever went to India, which is where my grandparents lived. And, you know, only went to on a, a day trip to France um, from my high school. So suddenly to go all over was great, loved it. did it for about seven years, but coming on to my seventh year, oh, and remember, all these years I was still writing my stories, still sending them off to writing agents and still getting rejection letters. And I was writing lots of stories, because I was always stuck in a hotel somewhere, or was, you know, um, waiting at an airport somewhere, trying to get home on a Thursday or a Friday. Um, but coming on to my seventh year, I thought, I can't do this for the rest of my life. And I tell this to the sixth formers when I, you know, give presentations in schools in year elevens, which is that you have to work until you're 65 years old. Um, and they kind of stare at you like, what? Well. And I do, the idea of working, you know, making lots of money, but not getting that job satisfaction anymore... You know, I'd secured myself financially, City city's a great place to work. But I thought, you know, I still want to be a children's author and I have to make that dream come true. But still the rejection letters were happening. Um, and it was about this time. As a student, I joined the Labour Party. So I was a political activist. And there was a campaign against the Iraq War and I was kind of part of that. Um, so I was quite very politically active around this time. And I was sick of working in the city and I still wasn't getting published. Um, and some of my friends said, well, you know, leave the private sector come and work in public service. So I applied to work in houses of parliament and um, I got a job there and it was great. Um, worked there for just under 10 years before I got published, got promoted, different jobs under the Labour government. Um, and I always show um, this picture to the school kids to say, do you remember this man? And nobody <laughs> remembers him anymore. <laughs> and I always say, I know you're very young, but um, you know you must remember this man, but not, not many of them do and it's a very bright kid. Um, But to say that I worked in the press office of the Labour Party when he was our boss, but that was a a while ago now. Of course you meet lots and lots of different campaign groups who come there to, you know, to lobby. And there was one group I came across um, that I became very interested, and they were a group of Asian women who um, called themselves the survivors of forced marriages. Um, And they were campaigning to make forced marriages illegal in this country. And I became really interested in what they had to say because I thought to myself, you know, these are British-born women, born and brought up in this country, and all these awful things that happened to them when they'd been teenagers. And nobody had really helped them, you know, not social workers, not teachers, not the police force, because there was this whole attitude when they were young, which was the you know, 70s, the 80s, early 90s, that, you know, um, it's the Asian people and that's how they do things, and we mustn't interfere with their culture. So there was this whole, you know, that was um, the general opinions, if you like, um, in, in education. And what they were trying to do was raise awareness. Um, of, of forced marriages to say, you know, th- this happens, we don't want it to happen to other young people. Um, and I thought to myself, you know what, I could write a story about this, I could write a book about a young British uh, Asian girl and what happens to her when she's being bullied like this. So I had the story in my head, you know, was thinking about it for a long time. And at the same time, again, throughout, you know, throughout the time I was in Parliament, and still writing my stories and still getting rejections, you know, it was constant. It almost became a routine. I didn't even pay attention to the rejection letters anymore because it was all the same standard stuff coming through but a friend of mine said to me you know forget the writing agents forget this traditional route why don't you enter um a, a competition because publishers are always looking for new talent through competitions and i thought yeah why haven't i entered a competition ever no one's ever it's the first time i've ever thought about it first time anyone's ever mentioned it but i applied i sent a story in to a competition that was based the head office was based in Birmingham. And um, I found out that I was shortlisted, so I went along to the ceremony, it was all great. I didn't win, but it was just great to be shortlisted, to just have you know, that recognition. And then I forgot about it. Um, and a few weeks later, I got a call from the competition people, and they said, I didn't know this, that Penguin were one of the sponsors of that competition. And because my sh- story had been shortlisted, someone there had noticed it, and would I go in for um, a talk to Penguin's offices? And I was like, uh, yeah, you know, of course. So I went along to their offices in the Strand, which for me, a Roald Dahl fan from childhood, was like walking into you know, ch- uh, um, Charlie's Chocolate Factory, like, oh my God, this is where Roald Dahl used to make his books. Um, so I walked in, um, did a presentation about why I felt I needed to, you know, why they should publish me, you know, what my stories were about. I met a lady there who eventually became my editor, and she said to me, if you really liked your story but you've written for younger this story is for younger children middle grade and I'd like to do something for teenagers do you have anything to show me? and I said well you know I've got this idea about this book about forced marriage I really think we need to have that empathy you know I could write you know, a good story about this and she said show me but I hadn't actually written a word down it was all in my head but she was really nice about it and she said you know what I'll give you a year to write it go off and write it and if at the end of it if I like it you can have a contract with us so I went away, and that was it. I was still in Parliament, still working for that guy Then it was really stressful at the time, if anybody remembers him. Um, but, you know, any time I had... I wrote most of it on the district line on the way to Westminster, but, you know, nine months it took me to get it done, handed it to her. This whole time, she, we were going back and forth, you know, she was advising me. And something which, which is quite funny, actually, because the one thing she always... the advice was that I needed to show the story, not tell it. And that's the mistake that all authors... Always have that they're always telling the story rather than showing it. You know, put the dialogue in, put the description in. So uh, nine months it took me, and she she liked it. I got the contract, and um, a year later, you know, a year after production, the book came out in um, 2012 I think, Um, and it's used a lot in schools. I've just got um, copies there, Um, so the schools use it, which is why I mentioned you know the presentation that I do there, because uh, it covers human rights and it covers forced marriage, and that's something that they do in schools. And I think my time's up. (laughs) But that's how I became an author, uh, from that dream as a seven-year-old in Leytonstone. Thank you.
2: Our next speaker is Shanata Sami. <laughs> Shalotta is a lecturer in post-colonial and global literatures at Queen Mary. Her research involves post-colonial literature and theory, graphic narratives, literary form, conflict and protest literature, borders and the state. She's also my personal advisor and is
4: awesome. <laughs> oh, thank you. <laughs> I don't know how to follow that. I'm really flattered to be here. And uh, I'm really glad to be in such wonderful company. There are so many different stories I could tell about why I do what I do, why I think it's important how I got here, uh, but today I'm only going to focus on the ones that relate to a project that I started last year. So I'm a lecturer in post-colonial global literature, uh, but right now I'm working with a sociologist in California, uh, and we're looking at how comics and street art are used to combat gender-based violence in Nepal. Specifically, we're interested in how these different forms, so graffiti, murals, graphic narratives, etc represent women and violence and how they promote different forms of empowerment. So we're both looking at art and we're interviewing activists and NGOs and artists to better understand how you might use these art forms uh, for women's rights. But as with many things, there's often a personal and a professional journey that's gotten you somewhere. And my personal route to this kind of work starts in Finland, which is my home country. I grew up there in a Swedish-speaking family, which is a linguistic and an ethnic minority in an already small population of five million people. My parents were diplomats, so we moved around a lot. But before that, my father had been a political aide, and before that, he was a student activist. My mother was was, and still is a lover of literature. (laughs) She's also a student of art history and her parents, so that would be my grandparents, uh, met during the Finnish Winter War. Um, They fell in love and they courted one another by sending each other books of poetry in the mail. So literature in my family was really um, what Palestinian poet Darwish describes as a torch that you carry from home to home in dark times, especially when far from home in in our case. Um, It was a source of identity and it was a source of hope and it was also deeply political. And my own journey to reading started not with poetry, but with a poster. So over our kitchen table throughout my childhood, there was this framed picture of really green grass growing against a blue background. Underneath it, it said this slogan in Finnish, Itse näisyys kasvar meista, which means independence grows from us. As I grew older (laughs) and learned about revolutions and grassroots movements, uh, I understood something about what this said about my culture, and also about my family. I mean, what kind of parents put a political slogan above their kitchen table? But at age five or six, when I was learning to read, and I was learning to read through reading this poster, all I could see was this kind of green grass that was always greener on the other side of the picture frame, but that comes especially with the freedom of reading. And independence really did grow from reading. As we moved around the world, uh, I became a really voracious reader of literature. Um, And I devoured Achebe and Arundhati Roy, Alexandre Dumas and Marquez. And at 18, I eventually moved away from my family to study English and history in the UK. I went on to do an MA at the University of York and eventually a PhD in post-colonial literature at the University of Oxford. But the further I moved away from my family and from home, I learned something else about freedom and literature and the links between literature and independence and freedom. I learned also about the streets that I couldn't walk down. I learned about the pubs and the clubs that weren't safe for me as a woman, about the men that I had to watch out for. And I learned that in both public and private spaces, there lurked dangers for women. Uh, because culture doesn't just liberate, it also enables. And one of the things it enables is violence. Um, this is even clearer today with the kind of recent Me Too movement Uh, But at the time when I was 18 and I came to study, I was really shocked to realize that everywhere that I looked, in the texts that I read, in the movies I watched, in the adverts, the YouTube videos, etc., there was a culture that often turned me into an object that in some ways stripped me of my freedom as a woman. So on the one hand, I'd kind of grown up thinking that literature was this profoundly emancipatory thing, and on the other hand, what I was learning as a young independent person, was that culture could also condition oppression and violence. And I think these are the two poles that kind of shaped my career as a reader, but also my profession as a critic, because it has also shaped my professional journey not only because people often told me that I wasn't capable because I was a young woman, I was told not to worry my pretty little head about doing an MA, which is a direct quote from my personal advisor, or that you can't possibly do a project on comics, Uh, by which they actually meant you can't possibly do an academic project on comics as a foreign woman, Uh, because a year later that department took on a British man to do precisely that. Uh, So these two polls have shaped my career because I learned to turn not just to literature, but to criticism. Um, Because now, more than ever, I think we need not just good writers to carry the torches of hope in a way, but we also need good readers, readers who will hold culture accountable and who will make sure that the arc of history keeps bending towards justice as that wonderful uh, Martin Luther King quote goes. But what I also learned was to not dwell on the defeats or the idea that the grass is always greener on the other side, but to be thankful for the very hard-earned opportunities that helped me to grow. And when those opportunities came along, I learned to say yes. So when I finished my PhD, I was working as a temporary lecturer and an academic suggested that maybe I should actually apply for that project, uh, that postdoctoral project on comics. So I said, Yes, and when I was offered the funding for it, I also said yes. And when my funding body, the British Academy, uh, kept inviting me to things, to lectures, to events, to workshops, to whatever, feedback sessions, I said yes, 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 and I kept going. So finally, after I finished my postdoctoral project and I started working here at Queen Mary, all those yeses in a way paid off because they asked me to host a conference at the American Academy in the United States. And at that conference, I met a sociologist who was interested in my work on comics and she said, this really applies to some of the stuff I've been seeing in Nepal uh, where I work on women's rights. Maybe we should do something together. So I said, yes. So now I work with different narratives and different art forms. I get to speak to artists and to activists who use contemporary culture on the streets to try to sow the seeds of change in an area where about 50% of women have experienced some form of violence. It's not enough. We can always do more. But it's a start. Our next speaker is Magda
2: Ogierenska. I, I butchered that. <laughs> uh, Magda is an activist, independent researcher, Florida, and blogger, as fundraising coordinator and management executive at the Feminist
5: Library. Thank, Thank you so much. Thank you. Okay, so, today I'm going to talk to you about the Feminist Library where I work. Um, My background is actually in uh, psychology and I studied business as well because I thought, you know, um, I originally wanted to be an archaeologist, but I thought there was no future in it. So I went to study business and psychology and ended up doing none of it uh, because I found what my real passion was at university, which was feminism. So I ended up going on and doing that. But before I did that, I did the practical thing of finding a proper job after university and um, I felt like I wasted four years of my life doing market research, basically (laughs) falling asleep at a desk until 12 every day because it just wasn't waking me up. Um, And now I do what I really love. Um, I work at the Feminist Library um, and help save women's history. Um, So the Feminist Library has been around 44 years now. Uh, It's got an archive of books, periodicals, so newsletters, magazines, Uh, zines, badges, tote bags, you name it. Uh, We've got loads of random pieces of feminist art as well, which are not officially part of the collection. The collection officially is made out of periodicals, zines and books. Uh, But if you go into the library you'll find loads of gems in there, which um, have kind of uh, accumulated over the years. And it is mostly volunteer run. Uh, It has always always been mostly volunteer run, and it runs as a collective so it runs in a feminist way as well so it's a very interesting place to be because you in most companies where you work you will have a manager and you will be basically told what to do whereas at the feminist library you can come in and come up with an idea and run your own program with other events everybody's welcome to join in it's a very very different and um, very interesting and challenging way to work. We have a program of exciting events at the Feminist Library. So we run all sorts of things from a running club, to exhibitions, to talks, uh, to parties, uh, zine making sessions. We have a bookshop in the library and we have a badge-making machine which is very popular so all sorts of interesting things happen and again we have an artist in residence for example which only happened recently because we had an artist who came on board joined the team and we thought what an excellent thing to do so we invented this role at the library and we made her an artist in residence and now she is going around with a van a feminist library van going around the country, so all sorts of weird, weird and wonderful things happen and the program constantly develops, so it's not just the library, it's, a, it's an exhibition space, an event space and a community space. Uh, the events that happen at the library are not just run by us but are also run by other community groups and we're accessible to everyone, so everyone can come in uh, who has obviously feminist ethics Um, no racist or (laughs) homophobic groups or anything like that, Uh, but anyone who doesn't have a space of their own, any activist group can come in and run their own events, add a donation, um, so it's affordable for everyone and accessible for everyone. And the history of the feminist library is very interesting because it's interlinked with the feminist movement itself. So it was set up in 1975 during the height of what's called the second wave, of the Women's Liberation Movement, and it has developed with it over the years. So over the years, what you can see here is a map of Feminist London from the 80s. And over the years, the Feminist Library shared a space with about half of these spaces that are marked on this map. So we shared a space with Spare Rib, which was a second wave feminist magazine. We shared a space with Sister Right Bookshop, which was also a cafe. Uh, with a women's place, which was a women's resource centre, and now, after 44 years, after 33 years in the same space, we're moving to Peckham. So I'll tell you a little bit more about that uh, later, that's how I got involved. I just wanted to talk a little bit more about the history first. So the Save the Feminist Library dragon uh, is a symbol of the feminist library, uh, because dragons are actually female, I don't know if many of you know that. And in the symbolism, in the general symbolism of the dragon, the dragon usually fights the knight and usually is defeated, whereas the feminist library dragon says, I'm not going to do that anymore. So the original design of the logo was actually a dragon sitting down with a book and chilling at the (laughs) feminist library. Uh, This version was designed specifically for the campaign that we launched three years ago, which was Save the Feminist Library campaign. But the original logo was, I'm not doing this patriarchal anymore. So the Save Homeless Library campaign started in December 2015, uh, which was exactly the same day that I quit my job that I hated very much, which was a very (laughs) nice coincidence. And that's how I ended up getting involved. And I've stayed on since then. And I'm proud to say that after a long struggle, after demonstration outside the council offices, uh, a big petition and a massive media campaign, we have saved the Feminist Library. Uh, we're now crowdfunding for a move to Peckham to a much, much bigger space, which is going to be amazing because we've already raised £40,000. Uh, the crowdfunding campaign is still open. You can see the link there, but I've also got flyers and newsletters, so you can pick those up later and you can talk to me if you want to get involved. So this was a photo from a celebration when we have reached our target on crowdfunder. <laughs> we were accidentally we were having a meeting while, when it happened, so I kept checking. It's, it's a very addictive game, crowdfunding, so I kept checking the crowdfunder while we were having a meeting and then I was like... So we need to have a photo (laughs) for the social media. So other ways you can get involved. There are some really fun things that we do at the Feminist Library. So Vagina Days are kind of like, uh, you know, those campaigns where you can bake at home and raise money for cancer charities. This is kind of like that, but with Vagina Cupcakes. So you can uh, make your own Vagina Cupcakes and fundraise for the Feminist Library at home with your friends. You can also join our Friends scheme. Uh, so our friend scheme is basically for people who donate regularly and um, that's the best way to support the feminist library long term because we have like I mentioned before we have struggled over the years and uh, we are at the moment covering about 60% of our costs running costs with the friend scheme so we're still getting there but we're getting there slowly and The Feminist Library is hopefully going to be moving to its new lovely space when it's ready about end of March, beginning of April, fingers crossed, date to be confirmed. Uh, We are coming up to the 44th birthday on the 14th of March, so join us if you want to have a little party and have a look at the Feminist Library. The party is basically just going to be drinks and a little bit of a chat and probably some feminist music, but it gives you a chance to see the feminist library if you've never seen it before. So join us.
2: Former writer and director by trade and is the artistic director of Studio Three Arts, which brings artists and communities together for creative and social change. In March 2018, Liza was commissioned by the Barbican to create Meat Raffle, a working class cabaret, which performed to sell out audience. Please welcome Liza. Thank you. Hi, uh, yes,
6: my name's Liza and I'm artistic director of Studio 3 Arts and I, I studied here, I graduated in 2000, that's how old I am, and I gave a very moving cordelia in this very room, so um, you had to be there, you really did. Um, art, without access is art behind closed doors. Studio 3 Arts, the organisation that I run, is a socially engaged arts practice, in Barkin and dagnum, that opens those doors keeps them wedged open and eventually takes those doors off their hinges so that everyone can make experience, talk about critique and own art and artistic processes. The organisation is 33 years old and in the last year alone we worked with more than 25,000 local people as audiences, curators, performers, participants and volunteers through a programme of events, festivals, projects at home and abroad, activities, shows, screenings and games of bingo. Funded by local and central government, trusts and foundations, donors, developers, and audiences. We're based in an ex-council community centre on the Gascoyne estate in Barkin. Um, as Sharika said, we recently produced a show at the Barbican called Meat Raffle, which is a working class cabaret, that celebrated working class artists and culture, and asked questions about the visibility of working class people in cultural institutions in the capital. Our show sold out. Audiences came from all over with a large contingent from Barking and Dagenham, including a group of regulars from Barking Weatherpoons who'd never thought about going to see a show before, let alone going to the Barbican. I want to talk to you today about the day I had my first on a kebab and <laughs> why this kebab was part of my decision to do the job I do today. This is a true story. I grew up in the South Wales valleys. my parents didn't have any money, really, at all. We were very poor. I was the eldest of three kids. I was the gobby one, very dramatic, and I loved performing. Well, showing off, really, and nothing's changed, to be honest. My dad worked in the coal... Yes, you can laugh, it's all right. (laughs) My dad worked in the coal industry, so when the national miners strike happened in 1984, my dad didn't go to work for quite a few months. So things got even tougher for my family there was loads of support for the families of the striking miners. We had a food parcel every week that we queued for. And I remember getting the best Christmas presents that year that I'd ever had. And there was loads of events and stuff. And this is where the kebab comes in. The NUM, um, that's the union that supported the miners, put on a Turkish party night for the striking miners and their families. So we're in the local sports centre, hundreds of us sitting at trestle tables in rows. And then someone puts down this plate of greyish meat a bread envelope, and some vegetables down on the table in front of me. Oh, and it tasted Lush. And then when I looked up at the end of the room, there was belly dancers. It was like an out-of-body experience. It was like someone had opened my eyes to another world. Another world with Lush food, dancing, and sequins. And in that moment, I wanted to know how I could be amongst this kind of thing every day. And my second thought was, is this how rich people live all the time? <laughs> and as I grew up in that place, I quickly realised the where you come from, how much money you've got, and how well connected you are, has a real impact on your social and cultural mobility. And this really pissed me off. As I grew up, I got more and more politicised. I was excluded from school four times for organising protests and petitions. And in my finest moment, a mass walkout. Injustice burned me and motivated me to do my own work to stay woke. In the end, the school made me head girl because it was easier to work with me than against me. <laughs> my parents remortgaged their house so I could come and study here at Queen Mary and Westfield, as it was called then. So, no pressure, they just remortgaged everything. Um, I studied English and drama with this idea of trying to find a job in the arts where I could combine my love of showing off with my grand plan to make sure that the best opportunities in the arts and culture sector was available to everyone, regardless of where you're from or how much money you've got. I met Lois Weaver and Ali Campbell, who quite honestly changed my life, and showed me the theatre makers can and do change the world. So here I am, standing in a room full of students, thinkers and artists, back at the institution that welcomed me in, pushed me, challenged me and shaped me and gave me the confidence to believe that I could be worth something. The organisation that I lead, Studio 3 Arts, has worked in East London for 33 years, creating opportunities for local people to be inspired and supported, to be involved in the the arts in whatever capacity feels right to them. We don't just talk the talk about engagement and participation, we eat it for breakfast, lunch and dinner. We model it at every strategic and operational level in the organisation. A number of people opened doors for me in the early stages of my career and still do. And I use my position now in the organization to make sure I can do the same for other people. If I can help you in any way, I will. So what did the kebab teach me? New experiences are strange and exciting, but they're worth pursuing. Shared experiences help grow networks and galvanize communities. A world you think might not be for you can be accessed with the right passport, tour guides and language. And bread envelopes are actually called pitta.
7: (laughs) Thank you.
2: Freelance writer and artistic director and CEO
7: of Extant. Hi everyone, hello, hi. My name's Maria, and actually I've, I've come as a bit of a double act because um, I'm here with Kumiko um, Mendel, who is sharing the platform with me today because we've been joined at the hip, it feels like, <laughs> for yes. the past, um, mm-hmm. certainly for the past couple of months. We're both, both in co directing a show, so I feel like I can't. Sort of each moment, of the waking waking day at the moment is is is. It feels like we've kind of got a bit of a hive mind going on between <laughs> us um, with a project that we're working on. We'll tell you a bit about. But just to introduce myself, I am um, artistic director of Extant, and I have been for the past twenty years. Extant's been running for about 20, 21, 22 years now. Um, I was the founder member, and it's a company that I set up as a reaction to having worked in theatre for a number of years as a writer um, and also in the arts as a project manager and feeling that there was no direct space that engaged with the experience of visual impairment. And so um, even though I had been working well, within mainstream arts, within um, uh, writing for black theatre at the time back in the 80s and also working in the disability arts um, sector, felt that whereas I was looking at what was happening with the deaf community and um, there been a lot of advocacy and exploration of, of shared experience and practice um, around that particular impairment group, there was very little happening with the experience that I had. I was born sighted but through glaucoma gradually lost my vision. And then the more, the more the less that I saw, the more that the arts became important to me. Initially as a writer, I felt like I had a voice, I guess, through um, the niche that I'd created for myself as a, as a writer in theatre. So it was, it was a really important um, aspect of my, my being, really. Um, and that's something that I wanted to, to share and to, to see kind of alive around me, I guess, with the, some of the other, other visually impaired people that I was coming across it seemed there was an experience of of, of very little um, in terms of opportunities and so I thought to myself that I would try and carve out this this space for visually impaired people and look at how being authentic on stage in performance could actually inform what we did in terms of our practice and also in terms of us as audience members as well. So um, Extant Extance started as really a kind of a, a research project that, that's grown and grown and grown over the last 20 years and now we are what we call <laughs> Britain's leading um, professional company of visually impaired um, artists. And we have done a number of projects that have been quite groundbreaking, I think, in terms of pushing the boundary around um, what's expected of um, visually impaired people and disabled people on stage and how that can inform the way that access is also creatively integrated into the work rather than having it as a sidelined sort of auxiliary um, service that's a hidden thing. We bring it very much into the kind of forefront and create it as the kind of aesthetics of the piece that we're we're producing. so, that's a kind of bit of a potted history. I want to hand over to Kimiko because I know we've got very little time and I want Kimiko to talk about what her background is and then also about what we've been working on collaboratively as well.
8: Thank you. Okay, yeah, so we are here's the other side of the double act. Um, I'm Kimiko, Kimiko Mendel, and I run a company called Yellow Earth Theatre. And we work with British East Asian actors, writers and directors and it's really about representation, basically. I mean, we're bringing East Asian uh, stories or British East Asian stories to the stage and we're touring these shows um, but my background just to go back I always remember when I was a primary school I grew up I was born here I grew up in Watford and my caretaker one day telling me that I was child of the enemy because my father was originally from Germany and my mother was from Japan even though my father was a Jewish refugee, that didn't seem to make any difference. So I and I always felt definitely like an outsider. I had very strange hair that was very thick, and I, and I went we went to Japan and when I was seven and came back without my mother, who fortunately died there. And and I just always felt very different. But one thing I loved doing was drama, and that was something I wanted to do. But so sort of dr- the idea of drama school was a bit off-putting because I just thought everyone's really, I don't know, posh and. I don't know, you know, didn't feel like the place for me. So I, I ended up going to university because my brother got to university. I thought, if he goes, I can go. So I went to university and I was doing a teaching course. I was going to do a drama course. I ended up, didn't, do much, didn't get the right A-levels, ended up doing this teaching course. And in my final year, um, I failed my teaching practice because I just really didn't like it. <laughs> it was, I was working with primary school kids in Norwich and I couldn't understand word they said. That didn't help <laughs> me, <no. laughs> But anyway, and then I ended up getting involved in a play. Someone had gone off to Nicaragua, which is in uh, Central America. I don't know if you know, in the, in, the, uh, in the 80s there was a revolution there and it was a very socialist place. It was, and I'd been there, actually, the, the year before. So someone had written this play about it, we all got involved, and, and we decided to tour it after university. And that was the first time I met you know, so we started auditioning, and I met a professional actor. I thought, oh, this is something I could do. Oh, this is really interesting. So we toured it for two years, going around universities, living in a van, and I loved it. And it was mad. <laughs> and in those days, you could you could go on the dole, you could get <laughs> unemployment. <laughs> you know, you, when you weren't working, you could actually get um, money from the uh, from the government to keep you supported as an actor. Those are days long, long gone, I'm afraid. But um, so yeah, it was great. So then, so I started off as an actor. And then I ended up training, actually, in France. There was a movement school called Jacques Lecoq, which was quite movement-based, and I was really interested in in that sort of theatre. And then I came back to London, and then I... Because I was half-Japanese, I started, you know, looking at what work I could get as a jobbing actor, and I was always like, well, you know, you're not Japanese, you're not English, you're nothing, you know, so you're always falling between two stools, and casting was a real issue, and I struggled. And until I met some fellow... East Asian, British East Asian actors and we formed a company because we thought well we're going to make work for ourselves if no one's going to g- give us any work so that's how we started Yellow Earth and I was there right at the beginning and I'm still there 22 <laughs> years later so. but I, I, I did a lot of the outreach and, and, and I, we also you know there were five of us and we all did other projects but we always came back and it was sort of kept going um, and and then I became artistic director about five years ago so it's been really interesting. It's not, and it's not something I had planned for in terms of being an artistic director. You know, it's a typical, probably female thing. I don't know, but it's like, oh, I've got to be a leader. You know, <laughs> what have I got to offer? But um, it's been, it's been a fascinating journey, and, and I'm, I am enjoying it. Um, and we, you know, I get to do some amazing projects. So I met Maria actually through something called Sustained <laughs> Theatre, and actually we did an event here, mm. didn't we? Mm. Um, quite a, a number of years ago. Um, Maria had been working with aerialists, partially sighted, visually impaired aerialists, and also um, she knew a Japanese musician who was a blind Japanese musician called Takashi, and I was I was really interested because I'd never come across him, and uh, I I knew about the Biwa Hoshi, which is the Japanese medieval musicians and artists who would travel the country. They were all blind, and that's how they earned their living, through their art, um, telling stories and singing songs, so I mentioned this to to maria she got very excited so we thought let's collaborate <laughs> let's do something together and that's how flight path started i'm gonna hand over to maria <laughs> so she can
7: carry on <laughs> yeah and it continues uh, we, we just opened last week actually in harlow and we went to stratford um circus <laughs> yes, yeah. last, and we yeah. and we we're in Clu- um, theater cluid um this yeah. weekend then we're we're, we're leicester and yeah and then we're in um we're coming to the albany, albany. In Deptford, in Deptford. Deptford so you've got so, to come yeah. and see it because it's really great and it but it's really <laughs> been the ch- a challenging project yeah. and we have tried to really push sort of something around access audio description and aerial movement you know we're working on aerial silks with these blind performers telling the stories of Four contemporary um, visually impaired artists from Japan and Nigeria and Australia and America coming to live here. But when we kind of dug further into the Biwa tradition that Kamiko has talked about, we discovered, of course, hidden underneath yes. the female side of the tradition, which has less known about, um, called the Goze. And the Goze women were part of the of the same the same. Um, you know, traveling, yeah. playing, storytelling, you know, a, a kind of movement, I guess. And so we're weaving the old and the new, and we're weaving all of these interconnected stories together and trying to do it in a way that has access really at the forefront of what we're doing, but in, in as, as part of the aesthetic. It's been really difficult. <laughs> um, it's been <laughs> a journey. Uh-huh. It has. It, it looks great and it sounds great, but it's just sometimes when you take on something that feels really heartfelt to you it you know things can things can happen really i suppose in terms of you making a stand around that kind of thing and particularly if it's new ground something uncharted so you be prepared that's what i say <laughs> is be prepared really and have a lot of resilience because you, you need it um and but it but the the result is also it's a, it's a make it can be amazing as well and be the kind of fuel that that keeps you going on to the next thing, whatever that's going to be. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. it, really.
1: I actually saw the show. I actually saw the show on Saturday night. <laughs> Strapped circus, um, and it's it's truly amazing. And I'm a really big fan of circus, and I love physical theatre and kind of circus and what I found really amazing was I closed my eyes and I really kind of enjoyed actually the audio description elements of, of circus tricks like stuff that you think was so visual and so important to you know see every kind of jaw dropping feat and you know if you're into The Great Showman and all that kind of stuff and there's some really good drops and kind of interesting things in the show but also the audio description is incredible and, and, and adds a whole different layer and I found it really incredible. So do, do go and see the Albany, do you do know what the dates were? 1st and 2nd of
8: March.
1: So yeah, you've got a little while, um, but yeah, the Albany's lovely in Zacfield, like a big round, amazing venue right in the heart of the community. But yeah, um, so we're going to move on to uh, Q&A now. Um, but yeah, my first question would just be about what, what, what's been your biggest challenge and, and, and well, what's been hard? I think I think that's that's harder to talk about, but I think we definitely wanted to talk about that. So if there's anyone who wants to go first, be very brave.
3: Well, I always wanted to be a, a writer, and it was always the rejection, really. Um, and I do lots of these presentations in schools, and the kids always go, oh, why didn't you? First, they're just really horrified that I'm in my 40s. Um, then they're just like, they're just but then I, like, why did not you give the idea? Because I'm telling them that it took me 17 years to get published. Um, and they're like, "What? Well, you just kept going. You didn't stop. And I was like, well, yeah. But at the same time, saying that that was a dream and it's something that you just kind of work at in your own time and, and don't let it go. But you you know, you know, have a great career somewhere else at the same time. You know, I had a great time working in advertising and traveling. I had a great time in Parliament. If I wasn't published, I'd still be there. I'm still a political activist. So it was really a case of never... Um, I think the rejection letters, yeah, but just thinking, you know, I'm not going to let this um, middle person stop me, because that's what they are, basically. They're just these professionals that decide what can um, go forward. So,
4: (laughs) I mean, I think I spoke about some of the challenges that I feel, some of the misogyny in particular, but um, I think the other thing for me is that um, English is my third language, and... So when I started studying in English, I actually found it really difficult to articulate myself particularly well, <laughs> especially in writing. Um, I really loved reading. I felt like I had a lot of ideas, but I couldn't, um, I couldn't really get them down the way that I wanted to, um, to essentially. Um, and that still sometimes remains a struggle for me, because I think um, the, sentences, the sentence structures that I'm working with are not always English in my mind. Um, But I had a lot of really patient teachers, and I think also I had some very brutal feedback uh, as an undergraduate um, that put the necessity of clarity into perspective, and that I really couldn't continue with these torturously long, impossible sentences. Um, And in fact, there was one who really quite brutally uh, compared me to one of these really difficult critics, and said, you know, you have all, all of her style, but none of her substance, which is <laughs> really a wake-up call. Um, but I, I just kept at it, and I think also uh, I learned to maybe keep things a little more simple, um, and often the most complex ideas are best carried by very simple language and simple expression, and I think that was a hard I think it's very interesting working in a feminist organization in a patriarchal world because
5: you, the organization structure within, can be as beautiful as you can imagine it, and yet you're still living and working within that outside world. So you, it's it's always a struggle, but it's also an interesting exploration of different ways of working and learning ourselves and unlearning ourselves these ways that we've been taught how to work, how I think we shouldn't work. I mean, you know, nobody who's not a morning person shouldn't be forced to get up at 7 or 6 a.m. every morning to go to work. I think it's insane, and yet we all do it. (laughs) And that's just a simple example. I mean, another one which is a bit more... I think troubling was when we were having our conversation with the council when they were trying to evict the library, we were trying to level with them because, um, you know, they have their pressure as well from the government, with austerity, you know, they have to make money from somewhere, so we tried to level with them and talk, talk about gentrification, um, and they basically went, no, nope, we're not talking about this, this is not a conversation that was that. So it's, it's very interesting, you know, where the conversations internally can grow and can make us develop. And then, you know, you hit against or when you come out to the, the outside world. But I think it's still a project worth having. Um, and we're, it's a mm. constant work in progress.
6: Um, obviously funding in, a, in, a, in the art sector and particularly in, in the sort of participatory practice sector. You know, there's, there's not very much money around But that's a given, I think. Um, I think one of the things that I really struggle with is the um, perception of socially engaged practice and community engaged practice as being somehow lesser than if just artists made stuff. Nothing boils my urine more than that. And, and it's something that we come up against all the time. And everything that we produce in my organisation is world class. I wouldn't allow it to enter the outside world if it wasn't. But yet somehow, I have to justify everything we produce because local people help to make it. And I find that like mega patronising. And I think it, um, it doesn't reflect the, you know, the serious aspirational quality of what's being produced in, in organisations like mine across the country. And you know, even, and I, I, well, do you remember when Darren Henley came? the Darryl who works with me up there. So, Darren Henley, the um, chief executive of the Arts Council, came one time and he. A major partner remember? Yeah, yeah. And, and he came and he walked around the building and everything and, and he said, Are these the posters of your youth arts? Is this your youth theatre? And I said, No, we just call it theatre. <laughs> because. There are, there are certain factions of society that if you put community or youth in front of something, it gives it license to somehow not be professional. Um, and he was like, totally agree with you. Totally, totally agree with you. But it was that kind of instant sort of thing of, oh, community theatre. Oh, I understand community theatre. Mm-hmm. No, you don't. <laughs> so, yeah, so that, that's a big thing for us. It's like, how do we challenge that kind of um, stereotype that if local people are involved, it ain't going to be as good as if professional people made it up west? <laughs>
8: I suppose for me, one of the things that happened with, with the company, um, I was, as I said, I was doing the outreach and sort of work and happily doing my own thing sort of on the side and quite happily pootling along and I had family and all sorts of other things I was doing at the same time and um, the original artistic director had left and uh, there were five of us who founded it and the four of us. Who were still around, but the others had left, came back, and said, "Should we, should we take it on? Should we carry on the company?" And we said, oh, "Actually, the politics is a bit tough. We don't want to deal with the politics, so let's not do it." So in the end, uh, the board pointed to other people, and that didn't work. They, they 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 applied separately, but the board asked them to work together, and they tried their best. But it's very hard to run a company <laughs> when you're, you know, that's not your intention, and they were very different people. So suddenly they left, and I was one that I was the only one there still. And the board said, "Would you step up?" Would you just fill in this, this sort of, you know, gap? And if this was just at this crucial point, um, this was 2011, when the Arts Council were changing from revenue funding to the National Portfolio type of funding, which was sort of similar but slightly different. So we were all having to do applications, and the application had already been done. And I said, oh, well, i better have a look, you know, because I hadn't really been involved. <laughs> I was like, oh. Uh, and um, I thought, well, I'm not going to do that because they, they'd <laughs> come up with this programme. So I sort of tore it up and did my own. Uh, but I didn't have, you know, I hadn't had time to put partners in place, etc. It was just sort of like blue sky thinking, and um, we lost all our funding, <clears throat> everything completely cut, and it was a real shock because everyone was, you know, assuming we, it, most people got like set, set percentage cuts, but we got nothing, and it was like, and I was, I was absolutely stunned, you know, and I was, uh, no one was prepared for it, least of all me, and, you know, and I was thinking I have to make press release. I have to make statements, and all this sort of stuff, but so that th- that was really tough, but actually. It worked out really well in the end because it meant that I, the pressure was off. You know, I wasn't, we weren't a funded company. I could do what I wanted. We had built up reserves over the years, so I knew that there was some money, you know, that was sitting there that I could start using, but we could apply for other stuff. So we started doing project to project, and we did that, and I did that. I mean, we did keep applying for NPO, didn't get it until last year. So we have finally... So after five years of working really hard, you know, it feels like, yes, mm. I've earned this, you know, I just haven't been handed this on a plate. So that's been, that's been really rewarding in that way. And, and actually, you yeah. know, not having to worry about actually thinking, well, I'm only doing three days a week, that's what I'm going to do, and I'm going to do other stuff, you know, it just takes pressure off mm-hmm. you. Because it is very pressurised, um, yeah. you know, uh, and competitive. So now we're back in the competitive field. <coughs> and the other thing is, this was one of the hardest things I've ever done, but Maria, t- <laughs> <That's laughs> the flight path. I
7: suppose, <clears throat> thinking about challenges, I think it in the sort of personal realm, for me i think i think this is kind of getting less as i get older but certainly for a long time it's that whole thing of kind of dealing with internalized sort of feelings of oppression you know and how and struggling really um with with those and how what you're manifesting externally how that's really being lived um in a, in a kind of an authentic way in the inside and then i think that Certainly, something that I've been aware of over the whole of my career. You know, it's not just imposter syndrome; it's more than that. That's been something to unpick and unpack along the way. So that's been that's been a kind of an interesting, an interesting thing that that kind of rises to the surface and sometimes sinks down again, catches me unaware. And it's but it seems to always sort of be around in some shape or form. This is like the whole. Um,
3: <laughs> do you think? individual drive is more or less or the, the same importance as like
6: a industrial government support in overcoming the cultural adversities that all of you
5: talked about. So do you think it's like the individual is more important or do you think
6: that like systematic changes within industries would be more helpful? It's a bit of both, <laughs> <laughs> if I'm honest. I think um certainly in our sector the cult of the personality is um definitely quite important and I've made a bit of a name for myself for being uh, annoying and uncomfortable and uh you know in, in the right places at the wrong time um and that's really helped but actually I think sort of more systemically um certainly um uh organizations at like the arts council sort starting to understand the value of of a participation based approach so we've seen things like the national creative people and places initiative of which um my organization is a re- recipient in Barking and Dagenham uh, putting place to drive up participation in in areas of nationally least engagement and um suddenly for our practice, social engaged practice to be at the center of things and people asking our opinions about how you build audiences, mm-hmm. we're like, finally. So there's, there's a bit of both, I think. But I think some of that has been because people have been vocal and they stepped into that arena where they've had to be like dead, you know, annoying uh, in order to start to rattle things up a little bit. But now we can sit back and go, welcome, welcome <laughs> to the table. So I, I think you do need those kind of agitators.
4: I mean, I would agree that it's definitely both. I think I remember being told when I just finished my PhD and was about to submit it and my supervisor read it and she said, okay, this is all really good and fine, uh, but now you need to learn how to write like a man. And I thought, what? But actually what she was saying was, you need to shoot from the hip more. She's like, every other sentence is maybe, perhaps, or dare I suggest kind of thing. And she's like, why? You've just written 80,000 words. Of course you dare to suggest. Like, just say it. And she said, you know, none of my male supervisees cushion what they're doing like this. They just do it. And, and I thought, okay, maybe actually what's holding me back a little is my self-doubt, or the way that I'm presenting myself is doubting myself. It's really hard to get rid of that, obviously. Mm. But you can try to not have it impact the way that you present your work, especially when you worked really hard. Um, so that was a really valuable lesson. But at the same time, I also think I've had some really good teachers, mm. and that is about system. It is about having the structures there that support you and that see value in you and that can nurture that. And I've always been grateful for the teachers that have pulled me up. um, And that's what I want to do as a teacher too. So it's definitely both.
3: I'll just just say a few words um, about publishing. Um, Black uh, and ethnic minority publishing is really, really limited in this country. You've got very, very, just a few big powerhouse publishers and they will decide that we will have one thing published this year. When I was published with this, it's award-winning, and I've still had, um, after that, publishers say, I wrote a book about uh, refugees, and we published one four years ago. Okay. (laughs) Uh, I have an agent, it's all official, you know. um, So, I think within the publishing um, industry, definitely, um, it needs to be Work both ways. There needs to be structural changes, um, and and there are now, um, because you know some hoo ha has been made uh, with social media. You've got people complaining, and they have to notice. Um, so uh, and, you know, uh, so LGBT as well. Um, you know, that's again they're, they're before one book a year maybe, um, and thousands are printed every year, but it was just one book that will come out. So that's also changing. So yeah, so it needs to. Be, but, but in order, I think, for there to be structural change. There needs to be pressure from, from, from yeah. us, you know, all the artists, all the all the uh, readers, yeah. um, fans. You need to make noise on social media, and only then will they notice. Uh, only then will they be willing to make that yeah. change. You no, know,
9: top down. Yeah. Yeah. It's a Charlotte because our research interests are pretty much the same. <laughs> I'm a comparativist actually, yeah. and I'm. I'm sure one of the few people were insane mm. enough to study both Finnish and Japanese together. <laughs> 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 I uh, that's my story. And what I wanted to ask you, as um, not just a scholar in post colonial, is about identity and language. At the moment, I'm studying about, or better, I'm researching about Japanese American literature. And sometimes, and in the past, I studied about. Finnish language and English language, so influence on English on Finnish. Realizing that sometimes language changes, mm-hmm. and changing normally has younger people not be understood by older people or vice versa. So I was asking, you were talking about literature and freedom, but how much language is freedom in terms of identity according to you? That's a really huge question. <laughs> <touch. laughs> I think language is so crucial for identity,
4: and I think. Actually, I mean, I love what I do. I'm really passionate about what I do. But if I have one regret, it's that in my own small way, I have contributed to the dominance of English over the smaller languages, including the ones that I grew up with. And that's unavoidable because I actually love English and I love the literatures that are written in English. But it's still a truth that we read more and more in English, that things get translated into English rather than out of English into local languages and I think that's really depressing and I think we really need to think about language learning and one of the things that I really value about this institution is that the students I teach often come with multiple languages but they don't realise what an asset that is and they often often think actually I only need to think about my English. No, you need to think about Bengali and Urdu and Arabic and the other things that you speak that are really, really valuable. Um, and I think it is about, um, we need a, a different attitude to multilingualism, essentially.
2: So mine's not
7: very technical, um, it's just who or what inspires you. And also, um, can we hear anything about what the Secrets of a henna girl is about?
3: The book is about um, a young British Asian girl. She's sixteen, and, and her parents take her abroad in the holidays. Um, and, and she realizes when she gets there that they have, they want her to marry someone against her wishes. So it's a bit of a, it's a story about how she stands up for herself and tries to come back. Um, I think what makes this book different. Um, what was really important to me when I spoke to Penguin about doing this book was I wanted. I didn't want a book where this Asian character is stranded somewhere and then this white savior boyfriend comes in to <laughs> scoop her out. I didn't want that, and I was saying, I'm not gonna do it if that's what you're gonna make me write. And they were like, no, fine, you will know, make it a girl empowerment story about how she can, you know, there's no boyfriend there that she just wants to, you know, go to school, go to college, have an education, be herself um, without, you know, feeling that she, she needs to be saved by anyone. Um, so that's what the book is about. Just uh, about her journey to come back. Um, and when it was released, it was um, a little more to do in my political context, but it was supported by the government and with this big launch in the Foreign Office. And they do want young people to read it, um, just because it's about empathy. When I was researching the book, I spoke to you know survivors um, about what they'd gone through, because I needed to understand how it felt to have your parents do that to you. You know, I needed to, to kind of understand that. It was you know it was about. Um, about a girl standing up for herself, um, and 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 what it feels like to have your own family do that to you. And I think you might have sort of noticed in the news now, um, because of, um, some of the uh, what a Tory MP has done, stopping the end uh, FGM female genital mutilation bill that they were trying to put through. Uh, you know, that's, that's a big campaign now, and that's about just you know um, the government doing what it can to to stop it, and who inspired. Um, I think really, um, the children's welfare, it was really uh, Enid Blyton involved. Oh, I just wanted to be there. <laughs> <laughs> that was it. Um, and I was really disappointed that you know, David Williams has beaten me to it. Uh, <laughs>
6: being <involved> <laughs> Victoria Wood inspires me. <laughs> <laughs> and just like all of the people that I get to work with in Barkin and Dagnam, um, just you know, there's a boiler engineer called Frank in his 50s who is a G. He's a pure G. And he's on our board of trustees now because he just talks actual sense. And, you know, when you sometimes when you find yourself in, like, arty-farty circles quite a lot, sometimes you just need a frank in your life just to talk sense to you a little bit. So just, yeah, just normal, normal everyday stories.
8: <laughs> Actually, my mother's been an inspiration for me. I mentioned my first mother died. My second mother is also Japanese, and I was very fortunate that 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 happened in terms of, um, she took over, she took over, she took on a family of three kids, (laughs) (laughs) she didn't take over, Um, you know, uh, uh, married, my father was a widow, and who was not very practical, and she, you know, she came to this country, she had she had been living in America, so she, she was, and she, her English was quite good, but she came over as an au pair and they ended up getting married, but she's been brilliant, and and I think for her, you know, she's one of these people who cares for people, and she does it brilliantly, and there's something about kindness, and I think, you know, we mm. just have to remember about, you know, the world is is in a really, you know, it's a difficult, difficult time at the moment with people being very, you know, pushed apart and cracks appearing, and it's unstable times, and we all know that, and, and I think we should, you know, remember kindness and be kind to one another.
5: Books, ideas that challenge the status quo. It's very difficult to pinpoint one author because I've, I've got many that I read simultaneously. Actually, uh, I, I can't stop that. It's a, it's a thing. It's a habit that I've got. But basically, when I discovered feminism, you know, I was for the nineteen years up to then, I was never inspired. that's why I never knew what I wanted to do, you know, I went to study several things. I just wanted to do something practical, you know, do something that would please my parents, essentially, and the society. And then I discovered feminism and everything just switched, you know, I suddenly knew who I was. And pretty much every time I open a feminist book, that feeling still comes back. So those ideas are still burning. So I think reading and reading women's history particularly, because, you know, every time I read women's history, it shocks me, and it makes me angry, and it makes me happy as well, because I discover things, but I shouldn't be surprised, and yet here we are, you know, in 21st century, we're still shocked by women in history doing things, because we're not taught about it
7: in history, are we? Just quickly, just, it's not so much a who, it's a bit of, of what, I guess, and I guess, um, Acquiring disability—it's been really interesting, really interesting journey, and it's something that's been very challenging. Talking about challenges earlier, earlier on, but also been something incredibly inspiring actually. And that kind of coupled with, you know, kind of strong imagination, which is accessible to everybody, um, has actually been a, a place of real fruitful—a fruitful resource for inquiry, which I keep on thinking is going to run out, and it doesn't seem to. That's why I'm here, kind of. 22 years on in the job that I'm doing and that's really it's kind of yeah that's been really great actually um to acknowledge um that that experience which is deemed as negative perceived as something that you know a lot of people say to me I'd rather be dead than be like you you know it's been actually something that has been incredibly enriching for me draw on in terms of
1: our practice and stuff. So, yeah, there you go. <coughs> it sounds, it's a pretty powerful place to end. And I don't want to stop conversation, but I do think um, it's important that we continue the conversations um, outside of here. Um, so outside the room, and there's still some food and drink and things available. So um, please do um, go out and enjoy it. Um, I just wanted to say a few thank yous to um, all of our speakers, um, first of all, so we can have a big <laughs> round. of you. So thank you very much for giving up their time on this Wednesday evening. And thank you guys, uh, most of all, for coming and uh, sharing tonight with us. Thank you. Thank, thank
0: you.